Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 29th, 2021. Um, Good morning from a warm, a beautiful, sunny day in San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. Unfortunately, whilst the climate is good uh, in San Francisco, the climate news or the news about the environment is much less encouraging. Uh, we have a report out in the Times that uh, an official report, whatever that means, is that we have more than 20 extinctions. Uh, the Washington Post uh, concurs with the Times, um, including the ivory-billed woodpecker. A beautiful picture for people watching this as opposed to mm -hmm. listening. We have a vision of this magnificent creature that no longer exists, that's been destroyed. I'm not quite sure by what, by global warming, by hunters, by a mixture of the two. Another of the uh, beautiful uh, pieces of uh, beautiful forms of life that we've lost is the Malacca creeper. Um, so what are we going to do about it? According to uh, Greta Thunberg, who everybody knows, um, Thunberg argues that we're talking too much about global warming, about the extinction of species, and we're not doing enough. Uh, CNN headline today um, talks about Thunberg roasting world leaders for uh, what she calls the blah, blah, blah of talk. Uh, Thunberg, according to The Hill, went after all the world's leaders, uh, all the blah-blah crowd, including, of course, Joe Biden, very much of a blah-blah man, and Boris Johnson and, and, and Emmanuel Macron, who's been on this show, all professional blah-blah experts, at least according to Greta Thunberg. Too much talk, she says, not enough action. And I'm quoting her here. She says, net zero, blah-blah-blah, climate neutral, blah-blah-blah. This is all we hear from our so-called leaders, words, words that sound great, but so far has led to no action or hopes and dreams, empty words and promises. Uh, my guest today on the show, though, I'm not sure if she believes in the idea of empty words. She, like Greta, is a climate activist. She has a new book out about words and the climate. Um, and I'm quoting her here. She says, why? Because after thousands of conversations, I'm convinced that the single most important thing that anyone, not just me, but literally anyone can do to bring people together is ironically the very thing we fear most. Talk about it. So are we going to talk about the environment? Or are we going to act on it? Or is talking a form of action? My guest today on the show is Catherine Hayhoe. Uh, she's the author of this Really interesting new book, Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Hope for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. She's also the chief scientist at the Nature Conservancy, and she's talking to me from her home in Texas, of all places. Uh, Catherine, welcome. So what's your take on uh, the blah, blah, blah narrative in, in Greta Thunberg's recent admonishment of world leaders? Well, I know exactly where she's coming from because we do hear a lot of that from CEOs as well as from heads of state that are basically saying, yes, yes, let's, let's do it, but they're not actually doing anything. And that's not what I am talking about. I am talking about meeting 
our talk with actions, talking about why it matters to us and what is being done to fix it. Not the policies that we plan to enact, but what we've already accomplished. Not the oil and gas leases we plan to reject, but the ones we already have. And as individuals, talking about not just what we do ourselves personally, but also talking about what our city has done or what another city has done that ours could do. What our place of work is doing or what another company like ours did and we could do too. What our school's doing or what they could do more of or what another school is doing and we could do as well. Using our voice is the first step to knock over that domino that begins the transition to that better future that we all want, no matter who we are, no matter where we live, and no matter where we fall on the political spectrum. Uh, Catherine, I was intrigued. I'm always intrigued. I, I do a book a day and every book has an interesting inscription, or if it doesn't have an interesting inscription at the beginning, it usually isn't a very interesting book. Uh, yours comes with these words. Um, to everyone who believes, and this is, you're dedicating the book, I guess, to, to the reader or to the, the activist, to everyone who believes the difficult issues in life are worth talking about. Uh, talk to me about talking. Um, why, why is that such an important theme in your life and your work and, of course, this book, Saving Us? Well, when we learn that climate change is not only an environmental issue, and that's a big theme in the book, the reason I'm a climate scientist is not because it's an environmental issue. I am a climate scientist because climate change is a health issue. It's an issue of resource scarcity. It's an economic issue, a national security issue. And most of all, it is an issue of poverty, hunger, and humanitarian crises. Climate change is, as the U.S. military calls it, a threat multiplier. It disproportionately affects the poorest and most marginalized and most vulnerable people in the world. That's why I'm a climate scientist. That's why I care. But what I've discovered is everybody else already has the reasons they need to care. They might be the same as mine, but they might be different. It might be because they're a parent or they live in a certain place or they enjoy doing something or they're a business person or they have military experience themselves. Whoever they are, they already have every reason to care. But if they don't think they care, it's not because they need more education about the science or more facts. It's because they haven't connected the dots between what they are already passionate about, what's already at the top of their list, what they're already concerned about, and how climate change is affecting it. So how do we connect those dots? By using our voice. That is how we connect with other people to share why it matters, what can be done to fix it, and how all of us together, it is up to all of us collectively to, as the title of the book says, literally, save us. It's not about the planet. It's about us. Yeah, it could be a religious book. And perhaps we'll talk about religion later. That's an important piece in your narrative and in your work. Um, you are a, a professional talker in some ways. Your TED Talk had 4 million views. You're very popular um, on Twitter. I think you have almost a million followers. Um, you've written 54, almost 55,000 tweets. What's the value of talking on places like Twitter? Because in your book, you talk about um, how uh, people have dismissed you. You say, I'm getting used to being hated. It's not for anything I've done. It's because of what I represent. Communist, libtard, lunatic, Jezebel, liar and whore, high priestess of the climate cult and handmaiden of the Antichrist. I've been called it all. Uh, I'm sure I'm worse. So, so what's the point of being on a place like Twitter, which is full of these lunatics who, 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 who use every opportunity to insult you? Well, 
though those voices are very loud on Twitter, and I block anywhere from one or two to as many as several dozen a day, as my book explains, they're only 7% of the population. Just 7%. They are definitely loud, and they definitely got a lot of airtime. These are the people you call uh, dismissives, the people who um, uh, you call them the 7% people you're never going to convince. Exactly. And I am not there for them. In fact, I have a whole thread on Twitter about how, you know, even if an angel from God with brand new tablets of stone that say global warming is real and foot high letters of flame appeared to a dismissive, that would not change their mind. So why do I think I can't? So I'm not on Twitter for the 7% dismissive. I am there for the 93%. Most of us are worried. Over 70% of people in the US are worried. But you know what? Only 14% of us talk about it only 14%. And if we don't talk about it, why would anybody care? And if we don't care, why would we ever do anything about it? So action begins with a conversation, starting from the heart, not the head, about why it matters and about what real solutions look like and about how we can be part of those solutions and what we might be able to do ourselves, what we could do together, and what that would accomplish and how we could bring in more people too. It all begins with our voice. And sometimes our voice might be on social media. Sometimes our voice might be talking or writing. Sometimes we can use our voice in voting, in looking at where our pension funds are invested and what banks we use and where our credit cards are from. But using our agency is the most powerful thing we can do as individuals because when you look at how the world has changed any time in the last few hundred years, the only reason it's changed is when individual people, not big, famous, important people, average, ordinary people decided the world could and should and must be different. And they started to use their voice to share that vision with everyone else. I'm not sure you're still convincing me, Catherine. There's a lot of, seems to me, blah, blah here. Um, you, you quote a woman in, in the book in a section on finding hope and courage, a woman called Catherine Wilkinson from a, a TED Talk. Uh, she, she says, uh, or you're quoting her, it is a magnificent thing to be alive in, in a moment that matters so much. Here we have the TED Talk, how uh, apparently empowering women and girls can stop global warming. But aren't networks like TED and even Twitter, aren't they just echo chambers, people talking happy talk to one another? And meanwhile, we're losing these beautiful creatures. Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, yes. as, as Greta Thunberg has said, uh, Boris Johnson and, 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 and Joe Biden and Emmanuel Macron are leading us into the, uh, the, the, um, the environmental apocalypse. Absolutely. It is not about the echo chamber. It's about reaching beyond it. And that's what my book is about. And that's why I am on Facebook, where many people are connected to their friends and family who are much more conservative. And everything I post there is deliberately for people to share with others. I know it's successful when you get the people commenting on there who don't agree either. I just joined TikTok. Not a big dancer or singer, but I'm willing to do it to try to get that message out. But I spend so much of my time talking to people in other ways, talking to people I know, talking to people at events, engaging with communities that might have nothing to do with science, nothing to do with climate, faith communities, the Rotary Club, business communities, people who ski like I do. My, in my book, I talk about how one of my colleagues is a gamer. So he's on Twitch talking about climate change while he plays Fortnite. Another of my colleagues plays ice hockey. So he talks with his teammates and the teams they play about how the outdoor ice season is getting shorter and shorter as the ice melts as it gets warmer. Every single one of us is part of multiple spheres of influence or multiple tables that we sit at. And the important thing is for all of us, not me, 
all of us to be having these conversations at whatever table we are at. It's the E word, isn't it, Catherine? Empathy. That's your business. You're seeking, looking for empathy. But at what point does empathy itself become problematic? You write about a conversation you had with your husband, um, Andrew Farley, who's a, a, an evangelical Christian minister, trying to make him interested in the environment because he plays golf. But at what point, when you're empathetic, for example, to golfers who implicitly or explicitly are destroying the environment, um, should empathy lead somewhere else? Should we be empathetic to everyone except the, the seven or the nine percent of people who won't listen at all? Well, um, I don't think I actually uh, wrote that in the book because I just talked with my husband the other day about golf. It was literally at lunch. Oh, two so days there was ago, somebody I else. I, I apologize on on the golf. <laughs> who was it? Some somebody else you talked to about golf. Oh, no worries. I talk to people about anything that I think will make a connection. I mean, literally golf, knitting, tennis, cooking, beer, whatever works. Um, but it's most people, most people are actually worried about this. Most people, even people who on the surface reject the science feel guilty because they don't feel like they can be part of the solution. As I talk about in the book, I have a story about how I was talking with a local farmer who I've known for many years, who always asks me for long-term seasonal forecasts but he won't take a word I say about climate change. So we were talking about what this year looked like in terms of its rainfall potential, because I am an atmospheric scientist, so I do that too. And out of nowhere, out of the blue, he said, I have to drive a truck, I'm a farmer. And I had not said anything about climate change or gas guzzling trucks or fossil fuels. I had not said a word about it. But our guilt is so close to the surface that we immediately connected. And that guilt is what's preventing most of us from acting. Now, that guilt is not what is preventing the 90 corporations that have caused two-thirds of this problem in the first place from acting. It is not guilt that's keeping them from acting. It is their quarterly returns. It is not guilt that is keeping the people, the CEOs, the presidents of the world from acting. It is their political reality and maneuverings and, oh, this, that, quid pro quo. That, it's not guilt holding them back. But for most of us, not those seven percenters, maybe even some of them, but for most of us, we know it's a problem, but we don't know what to do about it. So we are paralyzed and we come up with all kinds of self-justifications. And so guilting and judging us even more just causes us to dig in our heels. You talk about the problem with facts. You quote Ezra Klein, the New York Times podcaster and columnist. Uh, you quote him, we're so locked into our political community identities that there is virtually no candidate, no information, no condition that can force us to change our minds. Is empathy the thing that will allow us to change our minds? If you manage to talk, for example, to a, a Republican trucker um, and you, you're able to, to empathize with their life, will that get them beyond this, these, these divisions that, that, that Klein and so many others write about? We've had many shows about this issue. It opens the door. If we can empathize with and identify with, and we can't do this with everybody. I mean, I can't identify, you know, for example, with people who hunt. I don't hunt. So any empathy I have would not be genuine because I don't understand that world. I'm not part of it. But if we can identify something that we genuinely empathize with somebody over, so we are connecting and respecting each other rather than judging each other, that opens the door. What enables them to step through the door? recognizing that they have the potential to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So that's why the first half is showing why it matters to whoever they already are, whatever they already care about. But the second half 
is viable constructive solutions that they could support that are consistent with their identity, that not only help them express their values, but make them an even more genuine version of what they already are, a more fiscal conservative, as I talk about in the book with the story of John's dad, or a better Christian living out what we actually believe to be true as Christians, that we are to love others, or a better parent, or um, a more serious uh, lover of beer. <laughs> I know that might sound trivial, but the, tr the the truth is, is that climate change affects all of us. And if we don't think it does, we just haven't connected the dots. And climate solutions are good for us. They might not be good for the CEOs and investors of those richest companies that depend on fossil fuels, but everybody else, especially in a world where we're talking about a just transition for the people who are in the energy industry and they work hard to feed their families. And they didn't set out to, you know, destroy the climate. They just set out to be a good citizen. So including the just transition in our package of solutions we do have solutions that are good for everyone, and that's what we need to talk about. You quote Bill McKibben. Everybody knows him, or anyone interested in this subject knows him. Uh, uh, he said to you uh, while you're on a panel together, uh, the most important thing an individual can do right now is not to be such an individual. Um, is that in keeping with the argument in the book? Because you're, you're, you're finding things that individuals have in common and, and bringing out the empathy. What do you think McKibben means about losing our or sort of rethinking our individuality well first of all i love the way you step through the book like this this is absolutely phenomenal and i want to watch everything else that you do because it sort of makes people feel like now, they've got, now like, you're playing the empathy game with me catherine no i'm teasing you're gone it feels it feels like we're getting like the the cliff's notes so to speak of the book as we go which i love so so what bill was saying is what i'm saying too when we use our voices what are we doing we are by definition, de facto, connecting with other people. That's what we're doing. So we are building those bridges with other people by using our voices, which is what Bill's saying, don't be such an individual. How do we connect with other people? We do it by, by listening to what they're saying, listening, and by sharing also what we're thinking and what we're feeling too. And so it really is about coming together in this hyper-individualized world that we live in to recognize that what is at stake here is not our literal planet. What is at stake is our civilization as we know it. And again, no matter who we are or where we live or even where we fall in the political spectrum, when it all comes down to it, who does not want a world that is better than the one we have before today well, that it goes is more safe? Saying, though. I mean, everybody mm -hmm. wants a better oh. world, but that's rather vague, isn't it? It is rather vague, but let me tell you what's at risk with climate change, civilization. That is what is at risk. There might be a few people who want to live in Mad Max, but most people don't. Do we need to narrow it a bit? You quote Kate Raworth in the book from her Donut Economics. I've wanted to get Kate on the show for a while now. Uh, her work is very interesting, uh, but rather than speaking in Epithetic language, um, or, or, or bringing out religion, or, or, or anything else, she talks as a hard, a hard-headed, hard-hatted economist in terms of thinking the very foundations of, of our economic system mm -hmm. and introducing what she calls donut economics. Um, do you think that that profoundly radical economic rethink that's being pioneered by people like Raworth is really the key to fixing this problem? Well, first of all, it's a fantastic book. If anyone hasn't yeah, read it, I highly book. recommend it. And you say it's radical, but it's only radical because we haven't been doing it that way for a hundred years. 
when you read that book, you realize, oh my goodness, obviously everything we take from the earth and all the pollution and waste we spew into the atmosphere, it has a financial cost. Why isn't it included in our market? We already know that climate change has, for example, increased the economic gap between the richest and poorest countries by as much as 25%. We know that climate change has been leading to an average of $5 billion worth of crop losses a year around the world since the 1980s. Why are these losses not incorporated into our economic model? You might call that radical, but it also seems like a remarkable piece of common sense when you start thinking about that. I mean, if you can put a dollar on it, it should be part of the economy. And so what she's talking about is literally that. If that has a value to us, we should be valuing it. And it just makes sense that if somebody over here does something that actively harms somebody over here, that they should, or harms their bottom line or harms anything that can be costed or valued, that they should be paying for it. And that's the concept of a carbon price, like we have in Canada, where I'm from, where you can, you know what, you want to burn, burn as much gas as you want, you want to drive a gas guzzler, do it. But you're going to pay for the actual damages it causes, and that money is going to be used to help other people who are being affected, because otherwise it's not fair. You are taking from our global commons more than your fair share. The commons is, of course, key. You quote Eric Liu. Uh, he's been on my show, uh, one of the, the great champions of rethinking citizenship in the 21st century. Um, Liu says, uh, or you quote him, we no longer feel in control of our everyday lives as we retreat to smaller circles of kith and kin. The commons goes to seed. Um, how core is this um, rediscovery resresurrection, if you like, in religious language of the commons. We talk a lot about mm. the commons in this show. Is it the heart of, um, of, of saving ourselves? I think it is because we sink or swim together. There is no country that has walls that go up to the top of the atmosphere, either physical walls that can protect it from the impacts of climate change or even virtual walls because we're so interconnected with our economy our supply chain, our communications, our culture. We truly are a global world. And we've seen this again and again over the past few years and decade. And with climate change, it is a tragedy of the global commons. Either we all address this or we all fail. And in many ways, I know this book talks about climate change a lot because I'm a climate scientist. But when you go one level below, it isn't just about climate change, is it? It's about how can we come together on some of the most politically polarized issues in the world, of which climate change is one of the biggest. If we can come together on it, what else could we come together on and what else could we fix by focusing on what unites us, which is far more than what divides us. And that all gets done through talking, Catherine. Doesn't, again, I'm not convinced. I mean, I, I, I hope you're right, but I'm not convinced. It seems like the more we talk, the more divided we become. When I first saw the title of this book, Saving Us, I assumed it was a religious book, actually. And uh, you, you are uh, religious in your own way. You, you, you said, what I believe, what, what do you believe? I'm a Christian, and I believe that if you are someone who takes the Bible seriously, then you already care about climate change. And religion, as I said, you're, you're married to a minister. Um, religion sort of laces this book. Why do you think religion is so important in terms of saving ourselves in environmental terms? Well, first of all, if you don't mind, I'm gonna go back to the beginning of what you said. I wanna be 100% clear, talking is the first step. If all we do is talk, nothing's ever gonna happen. Talking is the first step, not arguing. We are 
arguing. Just turn on anything and people are arguing. I was talking to Van Jones the other day and he has a show with Newt Gingrich and they argue. Their whole show is about arguing, but they actually agree on quite a few things. And so he said, let's, let's have the last five minutes where we talk about what we agree on, because wouldn't that be nice for people to see what we agree on? And so, and Newt Gingrich said, yes, he would love to do that. So they started to have the last five minutes of their show on what they agreed on. And guess what happened? Their ratings tanked. No one wanted to hear anybody agreeing. They just wanted to hear arguing because that gets the clicks and the views. So I would disagree well, with you. I, I, actually, oh. I would disagree with that. I think it's because okay. Gingrich and Van Jones are actually rather boring characters and, and they're only interesting <laughs> if they're arguing. They actually have nothing else to say, but that's another issue. Go on. That, that's a totally different issue. The point is, is that you say we do a lot of talking. I say we do a lot of arguing and I'm not advocating for arguing at all. In fact, I say, you know what? If we can't begin a conversation with something that we agree on, chances are it won't be constructive. So I wouldn't even go there. Begin again at a different time with something you genuinely agree on, listen more than you talk, and always end with something that we can actually do to make a difference. Because let me go right back to what I said. 14% of us are talking about it. 14%. And if we never talk about something, what do you think are the chances we're ever going to do anything about it? Well, let's talk about endings. You end in a very typical note. I read a lot of these kind of books, Catherine, and, and they all seem to end on the same note. Uh, I'm quoting your final paragraph. The future we collectively face will be forged by our own actions. And I, you, you're, you're calling for, obviously, a, a human agency here. Climate change stands between us and a breathtaking, exhilarating future. We cannot afford to be paralyzed by fear or shame. We must act with power, love, and a sound mind. And then you end, together we can save ourselves. Boom, boom, boom. Um, so very briefly, tell me some concrete things that we can actually save ourselves with. We, we've been over the talking. Let's get beyond the talking. What can people actually do to save well, ourselves? Well, I don't know how many books you read that ends with the words of St. Paul, because that's who I was actually paraphrasing there. Yeah. Um, but, well, a lot of people have obviously been reading St. Paul recently, but go oh, on. Oh, okay. That's very interesting. I'll look for those endings then. Um, but each of us has a role to play because the only way the world has ever changed before, slavery, civil rights, apartheid, women getting the vote, was not when a president or prime minister or CEO or big, rich, famous person decided it had to. It was when ordinary people decided the world could. I, I get that. So we're getting beyond the blah, blah that Greta has been critical of. G give me some concrete things that people can do. Use your voice. Use your voice to talk about what you're doing. Do something yourself and then talk about it. Find out where you live. What are they doing in that city? And talk about it. Ask someone else how they feel about it. And then ask them, hey, could we consider doing something together or going to talk to our place of work about what we could do about it? Every single one of us has a voice that we can use. Every one of us, no matter how old we are, no matter where we live, no matter what we think, we have a voice. And that's the first and most important thing that we can do. A voice. But again, I understand that. And, I, you know, I take your point on having a voice. But what should we be using concretely our voice for in terms of saving ourselves? Can you give me a couple, yes. two or three issues? policies, things that you think people should care about to make the world a better place? Well, number one, why it matters to whoever or whatever you're talking with. So make it very concrete. We're not talking polar bears here. We're talking about the air quality over Salt Lake City. We're not talking about Antarctica. We're talking about the hurricane that hit Louisiana. Make it very concrete 
and then talk about something equally concrete that is literally happening in a place where you live, like the fact that in Texas, we've got 23% of our energy from clean energy and I got solar panels and I love them. What do you think about that? If you, using our voice also includes calling our elected representatives. And right now the United States has a chance. They have a chance to pass legislation to put a price on carbon, which just about every economist in the world agrees is the most sensible thing to do. If you have the voice and you live in the United States, now is a great time to call your federal representatives and say, you know what? I support a clim climate plan. I support a price on carbon. It just makes sense for all of us because a wildfire does not knock on your door and ask you who you voted for before it burns down your house. We need solutions for all of us. And right now is a critical time to call your elected leaders. Well, that's good stuff from Catherine Hayhoe. A price on carbon. We certainly need that in uh, fire-inflicted Northern California. Uh, your new book, Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World, is is an interesting um, and, um, and, and, and compelling read, I think, and certainly an urgent read in terms of saving ourselves. Congratulations on the book, Catherine. What, you're talking to me from your home in, uh, te in, in Texas. What else should people be reading in these strange times where, I'm not sure about Texas, but in California, we're still not quite sure whether we're supposed to go out or not? Well, record numbers of people are not only concerned, but really worried about climate change. And so one of my favorite books is called All We Can Save, which is a compendium of 60 women's voices, some essays, some poems on climate change, not just talking about why it matters or what we can do to fix it. There's plenty of that, but there's a lot about how we feel about it, how we respond to it. And All We Can Save truly is an amazing book. So I would encourage people to check that out as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Catherine, and, and best of luck. And we'll have you on again to talk more about saving ourselves. Thank you so much. That would be lovely. Thank you.